health systems, and this is no different from a large group practice or any employer really of any type of employees, are hoping and want to hire a unicorn. Hello, I'm Dave Gans, MGMA Senior Fellow for Industry Affairs, welcoming you to the Executive Session, a monthly discussion with a healthcare leader on a critical issue of interest to medical practice executives. Today, I have the pleasure of speaking with Ron Holder, FACMPE, who assumed responsibility of being MGMA's Chief Operating Officer in September 30, 2019. Important for today's discussion, Ron has over 20 years experience in academic and large group practices, most recently being the Vice President of the Temple Region of Baylor Scott and White Health, with responsibility for the practices and hospital functions for over 220 physicians and 80 advanced practice providers. Ron, please introduce yourself, describe your experience in group practice. Thanks, Dave. Uh, hello, everyone. Uh, Ron Holder. As Dave said, I'm the Chief Operating Officer of MGMA here now, and I have about 10 years of experience in true blue academic practice. The first four and a half of that was at the University of Kentucky in the Department of Surgery and progressive roles there, where I was an interim department administrator and an associate department administrator. And I had five years at the University of Louisville, where I was anesthesiology department administrator as well as uh, responsible for the practice plan. And then I moved to uh, Baylor Scott & White. It was Scott & White Clinic then uh, in Temple, Texas, uh, before the Baylor and Scott & White mergers, where I spent seven years as the administrator of the uh, Scott & White Department of Surgery. Uh, And then the last eight were as vice president, first of medical specialties, or at a large department of medicine and and a couple of small departments. And then that... uh, at one point in time changed to Vice President of Operations title. As you pointed out, I have about 20, over 20 years of uh, academic and large integrated delivery system experience. And I'm sure you have the scars to prove it. <laughs> a few, a few, yes. but you know, scars are what builds character and one of those things, right, you you, uh, you get experience by, by the scars and you can't get the scars without the experience, I guess. That's right, I, it may be more important for our discussion today. Ron has walked the walk as well as talk the talk on on health system management and how physicians being part of a health system have advantages over their peers who are in private practice. Uh, So let's be a little bit more specific looking at what happened when you were at Baylor Scott and White. You know, I'm sure your responsibilities provide an excellent view of the advantages physicians have for being part of a large health system compared to their peers. Uh, During the six years that you were vice president for the Temple Region, how many physicians did you add to the practice? So in my immediate areas of responsibility, I would say around 30, and then we added another 40-ish physician assistants and nurse practitioners. But within the system, it was significantly more than that, hundreds of of physicians across the Baylor Scott & White health system. Maybe uh, let's add a little bit perspective because you were responsible for the Temple region, and I'm originally from Texas. So I remember driving through Temple, Texas, in between coming from San Antonio to up to Dallas. And Temple is, just from background, originally it was in the middle of nowhere. It was a railroad junction. And I understand that Dr. Scott and Dr. White were railroad doctors. The early 1900s, they practiced together. And I understand that's the third 
oldest group practice in the United, in the United States. Do you want to talk about that? Yeah, well, I, I, you're exactly right. Uh, Dr. Scott and Dr. White formed a partnership based on uh, old railroad town. They were uh, uh, physicians for the, the railroad workers there, and uh, their practice started to grow, and eventually they got to the point where they decided they needed a hospital to work out of, built the hospital there. And uh, it is, I wouldn't say it's completely out in the middle of nowhere, but because it, it, it is on I-35, which is one of the biggest stretches of, of highway. Uh, busiest stretches of highway in, in the United States. and But that's one of the things that uh, attracted my wife and I originally to the area because we're from uh, small towns in Kentucky. And so to be able to grow my career at a place where we were able to sort of be in a smaller town but have a, a tremendously large and successful and uh, health system with a strong reputation was really attractive to us yeah. at the time. Yeah, and I know Baylor Scott & White has built an international reputation and uh, also now has the Texas A&M Medical School. Yeah, uh, we've been partnered with them for quite some time, and there in Temple, that was one of the exciting things about it was that we have a lot of their medical students rotate through there, and in conjunction with Texas A&M, uh, large number of residencies and, and fellowships across all this. So, so we got to uh, engage in research. We got to you know community-based medicine. We got to uh, be part of a large health system, but also we got to see the you know the future stars, uh, future healthcare providers being trained. And that, that was, you know, exciting. I, I'm, I'm at my heart. I love being around that of, of coaching and teaching and all that. And, and uh, I try to do that in my professional life, but I also like being around that when it's happening for uh, medical students. Yeah. You know, I think you've already identified some of the selling points that how Baylor Scott and White recruited doctors. So when you recruited individual physicians, how did, how did you make a case to come to, Scott, to Baylor Scott and White? Well, one of the things that, you know, we would always say, and it's probably not unique to, to Baylor Scott & White, is, you know, come be a physician. It's a physician-led organization. Uh, the CEO of Baylor Scott & White now is not a physician, but there are physicians in prominent positions of leadership all throughout the, the organization. Back the when when I joined Scott & White uh, Clinic, and, and even now there's a physician at the head of Scott & White Clinic, which is a subset of the physician practices there. And uh, so that, that is attractive uh, to a lot of physicians. Uh, being part of uh, Baylor Scott and White is something where, uh, and again, this is not going to be unique to Baylor Scott and White uh, necessarily, but it provides a lot of different career growth opportunities for physicians. So, in a, in a system like Baylor Scott and White, there's of course the educational trees where you could be an educator, a program director for a residency or fellowship. You could grow along the lines of of quality. Uh, the quality department, uh, coding and documentation, which are typically led by physicians. And it was just lots of different opportunities for people to, to grow as leaders. Also to be, you know, a chief of a division or of a department or, or whatever, or a chief medical officer because the it was an integrated delivery system, not just a practice and, and a hospital. You could become, you know, chief medical officer, associate chief medical officer of a hospital, those kinds of things. You know, the uh, stability, security, and predictability are things that, can be attractive uh, at an organization like that to physicians where it's not necessarily contingent upon, you know, your your own private practices, revenue cycle efforts, or short-term emergencies as to how much you get to take home on any given month. Yeah, integration with other specialties, uh, which is cool. A lot of practices that are out there, especially the smaller ones, are single specialty in nature, and you may not get interact as well uh, with your colleagues in different specialties to ultimately get to the best care of the patient, which is 
which is the goal of pretty much every physician that I've ever met is, you know, they, they want the best thing for their patients. And, and sometimes that is something that that particular physician can do. And sometimes it's something that they need to work with people uh, of different specialties to achieve. And, and at an integrated delivery system where physicians are employed and there's all the specialties are there, that's, that can be facilitated. One of the ways that such care can be facilitated is uh, for you know electronic medical records and, and things of that nature, which is a, is a way for uh, everyone to be accessing the same information and to follow their patients when, when they're being cared for by other providers, different specialties. And sometimes, obviously at this point in time, a lot of private practices are, have electronic health records and, and things of that nature, but some, some practices struggle with coming up with the capital or being able to do that to, to provide that infrastructure uh, so, so that you can have the continuum of care for your patients. And, and certainly it, that doesn't always translate, even if you have it in private practice, it doesn't translate to your colleagues, the specialists you may refer them to, or the, or the primary care physicians that you get your referrals from, doesn't necessarily mean that they can see in real time what's going on with the patient. Yeah. You know, I know Baylor Scott & White has a very broad footprint across Central Texas. I mean, it's not, you know, you, uh, you say you were responsible for the Temple region. Well, there's more other regions. Now, in your recruitment, did you recruit entire practices at all or sometimes, or just at the individual doctor level? I specifically did not, and the reason that I didn't is because as Temple being in, in what was Scott & White before the merger, the oldest per se region we had we had the market share it, it was it was not even close to, uh, with regards to any other big practices or big health or health systems in the temple region itself so our growth was more uh, organic or by virtue of providing specialty care to some of the smaller outlying regions that weren't able to necessarily staff specialty care, you know, hire a gastroenterologist or a cardiologist, maybe maybe they couldn't support a full one or or to provide coverage for those. So we sometimes staffed and helped with those types of things. But now that's not to say that Baylor Scott and White Health didn't do that. We just didn't do it very much in the Temple region region. because uh, our, our growth was a little slower there due to the market forces already having the largest market share by far than on our periphery. On our periphery in areas like the Austin region or College Station or, you know, Waco, things like that, our our growth was much larger. And there were occasions where we did bring entire practices. Yeah, because we've seen this among MGMA's members where practices who may have had a history of being independent recognize the advantages of being part of a a larger health system Mm -hmm. and the entire practice moves. Right. So well, let's talk a few minutes about this. You know, you already mentioned earlier some of the advantages that Baylor, Scott & White offered to, to doctors as far as their technology, the, the large economic benefit of being part of a health system. Do you want to talk a little bit about uh, the, what is the aspects of economic clout and how can a large health system leverage its financial advantages to benefit doctors and, and have them want to join? You know, if you go back and look at the first round of acquisitions back in the 90s, hospitals and health systems kind of learned some some lessons with regards to how not to do it. Uh, there were loads of occasions where it failed because the, the health systems, you know, looked at it in terms of, hey, we'll hire all these doctors, we'll buy out the practice, we'll put them on a fixed salary. And then and then what happened? Well, is when they put these docs on a fixed salary, their productivity dropped by a half or a third or, mm-hmm. or whatever, and it, it didn't end up being what they wanted. So the systems learned, adapted 
adapted with regards to the models and you know put them on maybe some compensation models that's kind of the buzz, buzzy word thing is make, making sure you have a compensation model per se and, and to, to be able to manage that more effectively instead of just putting someone on, on a fixed salary to come be a yeah. physician yeah. in your, in your you know, system. You know Ron I've always thought health systems want to hire the best and brightest physicians right and then then they're surprised when those same very smart physicians know how to game the system. Well health systems, and this is no different from a large group practice or any employer really of any type of employees, is you are hoping and want to hire a unicorn. So, and, and by that I mean uh, you want to hire a, a physician that has good outcomes. You want to hire a physician that is productive. You want to hire a physician that uh, has great patient satisfaction scores, that can develop a rapport with other physicians, members of the team, respect the staff that work there, uh, have an interest in making the, the business of the medical practice successful, all these things. And, and you know, the, the flip side of that is what in such a scenario if a physician has every single one of these would make a physician want to be part of a system <laughs> you know you know so that, that that's kind of the the conundrum that you have is that if you have all those skill sets and, and you are interested in maximizing all those skill sets and using them on a daily basis why wouldn't you be in private practice so what, what ends up happening is there ends up being sometimes, unfortunately, a one or more of those elements is not present in, <laughs> yeah, in some yeah, of the physicians. Yeah, that a, it's an asymmetrical hire. Yes, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, w- which of these are, are you willing to to not necessarily get um, yeah. in your hire? So, yeah. Um, and to your point with regards to physicians being able to to address some of those things and I don't you didn't use the word work around I'm, I'm trying to remember what you said with regards to uh, take advantage of whatever the deal they were offered is one of the things you see and, and I hear this from my colleagues all the time is you know you can set up a compensation model for a physician that's maybe heavily uh, skewed towards RVUs or whatever but then you have an, an element of of it that is you know two three five whatever percent that's patient satisfaction related or whatever and fortunately this doesn't happen that often but you can have a physician who looks at it and does the math and is like well you know what I may not be able to provide great patient satisfaction I'm never going to be good at this uh, and I'm not interested in development I'll, but I'll, you know what, I can make up for that percent by seeing one more patient per day. <laughs> and so that's what ends up happening. So, yes, yeah. uh, to, to your point, <laughs> that, that, that happens sometimes. Yes. But you, you want to try and hire the unicorns. If you're successful at hiring the unicorns by, by having a culture that unicorns mm-hmm. want to work in, that, then you can do it, and it can uh, obviously benefit your practice. Yeah. In fact, I, I think you, 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 you hit on a very key element, and that is practice culture. And I've, based on my observations, health systems oftentimes have greater difficulty creating a positive culture because they're so large. Right. You know, they'll see cultures at the departmental level, but trying to extend that throughout the health system can be complex. Uh, what has been your experience in, in, in practice culture? You have to find out what the individuals hope to get out of it. You know, the one of the things that I like to talk about has to do, and I would draw a parallel here with regards to communication, um, is you know, failed communicators expect everybody else to adjust to them. Uh, a good communicator finds out when you're having one-on-one conversations with people what it is, how is the, the best way that they communicate. Is it text? Is it by, by asking, by delegating work or whatever in, in the form of a question instead of, you know, just telling people to do things? Well, the, 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 the parallel there with regards to, to culture is 
what is it that Physician X hopes to get out of, of being part of this organization? How can you help them be successful? Are, these, are, they in a, are those things that they hope to get in alignment with what the, the organization says its culture is? And if so, you can have a very productive uh, match that lasts for a very long time. Uh, that's not always the case, that, that you have those matches and, and one will end up leaving the other. But culture is extremely important and you, you have to have the physicians be a part of, they have to be in alignment with the culture, but they also have to be a part of continuing to build and refine the culture because they, they are viewed by the staff, usually as the leaders of a clinical team, and uh, those staff have to see it modeled. It can't just be spoken, it has to be modeled. Those staff, if you think about a physician encounter in an office, the staff typically spend more time with a, a patient during a visit than the, the total of the physician's time with the patient. So uh, it, the, the culture is very important from top to bottom of all aspects of the organization. Yeah, yeah. And I think this is where being part of health system parallels being in private practice, that organizations that build a, pr- a productive culture focused on patient care have very little trouble recruiting new physicians to come into that organization. And I always like to, my observation again is that organizations that have a good culture that focuses on patient service and also productivity financially do very well also. Right. You know, whether they're part of a health system or if they're an independent practice. Yeah, if you're doing the right things, a lot of the times the money will yeah. Flow. The money comes, you know, it's secondary, but it's there. Now, of course, uh, large organizations like Baylor, Scott & White have economic advantages over small organizations. They have the opportunity to acquire the latest technologies. Right. Uh, they have economies of scale where they have multiple doctors using specialized equipment so they can amortize the cost over more patients. So what have been some of your observations on these financial benefits that that large system has? Well, it's not always just, uh, when you mentioned contracting, uh, it's not necessarily contracting with the payers. And that is a big thing because, you know, I, I don't mean to minimize that. Obviously, a big system can, you know, can swing a bigger stick to uh, get better rates. But those same types of weight to swing around, if you want to call it that, can also be with regards to uh, the vendors that are supplying the the things that are needed by the practice, whether they're devices or or things as routine as uh, getting good rates for the types of supplies you would need in a clinic setting. So that that there's that. There's also uh, the economics of being able to work with specialties that may not, due to current economic factors in the marketplace, be able to exist on their own. And by that, uh, I'm... uh, I think it's an extremely important point. Exactly. Like, if you think about a specialty like palliative care, Mm -hmm. palliative care is on a huge growth curve right now, and there simply aren't enough palliative care physicians and providers out uh, in the United States for the demand. It's tough to pay for because of the market demands uh, of, of... uh, the salaries that palliative care physicians can demand versus what they bring in via their own billings, it's sometimes difficult to, to have that outside of a system. They're also you know, heavily hospital-based in terms of the, t- the types of patients in their, their, their average day, but 
still, you know, geriatricians, same mm-hmm. thing as, you know, the baby boomers are aging. There's more and more demand for geriatricians, and there's there's not enough geriatrics fellowships uh, creating enough geriatrics docs for the demand right now. So uh, in order to get one, do you have to sometimes subsidize that well, in, in it, the system? It, it's a cross-subsidy right, yeah. that some of the physicians who may have, and also ancillaries that right. bring in large income to the health system, some of those dollars are then paid to the primary care physicians or, as you said, geriatricians or palliative care physicians, specialties that may not generate large amounts of income but have a but benefit the patients and benefit the, the entire system. And that's a dicey thing to talk about sometimes because it can be a slippery slope with regards to saying that, well, we have to pay these docs this in order to, to get them because there's a shortage of them versus the slippery slope of paying docs above market and then the the perception is that there's shady stuff going on or whatever you know paying for referrals which is you know it's in the news all the time and that, and that's that's bad news so but there is that with regards to hospitals in order to pay market it doesn't necessarily mean that they would be able to exist on their on their own yeah, and yeah. to be able to recruit them because there's such a shortage yeah and i know you know private practices do the same thing right. as far as you sure know bringing being able to t- to especially in the multi-specialty practices or even among a single specialty smaller organization when you bring a new doctor in you're going to subsidize that doctor's salary until they they get up to speed and can see a full patient load every day and and be able to contribute pull their weight within the practice another economic boon uh, if if you would say it is sometimes when you're when you're joining a practice especially if it's an expansion of a practice you may be offered some time some type of a guarantee or or whatever but to come in but then you then you are in a situation where you know there's partners in the physicians you know you're, you're not a partner yet you have to grow your own patients take a little bit more responsibility for that or whatever a lot of times when you join uh, big health systems they're they're hiring a physician because they already have a demand for that number of physicians and you walk in the door and, and you, you you have a patient panel or you, you have business uh, patients to see that that is a, a boon that sometimes you may not think about you know risk mitigation is another one um, with regards to fluctuations in, in the, the economics of the specialty the region the, the whatever so. well well also I think large health systems oftentimes have the specialized staff to do the analytics to do some of the analysis and right. and to and to understand what they do well and how to improve where they're not and then from the physician's perspective you know, the decision to work for a system isn't any different than, you know, joining a, a, a physician practice is, you know, you need to do your homework on, on the organization, the organization's leadership to make sure that the organization walks walks the talk because, you know, everyone says stuff during an interview process of, of how great it is, but you, you should always see if if that is truly what you want out of either a, a system or a practice and, and the, the environment that you want to practice medicine in. You know, as we also as we're looking a little bit towards the future, you know, we know that some of the trends in payment from insurers and the federal government has been replaced fee-for-service payments with some value-based pay- reimbursement model. This may seem to favor large groups, but it also can favor certain private sector pr- physicians who ha- find good market niches. So, you know, what advice would you give to health systems and and to independent practices? Uh, for what they should be doing today to prepare for a different type of payment system based more on value 
uh, than on just the work they've done in fee-for-service. Well, I think that outside of being part of a large system, even the, the, the group practices or smaller practices that find themselves being successful in this transition are ones that are developing worthwhile partnerships. Maybe in primary care you can look at it in terms of, you know, well, we can do most of it maybe on our own because we're, we're managing the patient's journey. Um, but, but even that, you have to make sure that you, you, your specialists that you're working with in the care of patients are aligned uh, with regards to value versus volume type of things as well. And so it doesn't necessarily mean that everybody has to be part of the same organization, but you need to make sure that you're, you're engaging in relationships in order to do so. You know, the, the other thing is, is, too, with regards to practices or larger groups that are looking at being successful in that is investing in, in some non-physician providers that, again, sometimes systems have an easier time doing because there is a risk associated with the costs associated with a, a new employee or whatever that may not have immediate payoff. But the growth of things like navigators, nurse navigators, patient coordinators, and things like that to, to help patients throughout the continuum to provide education to them with regards to things that they can do throughout their lives that, uh, to keep them out of the hospital, to hopefully transition uh, health care to health care instead of sick care, because that's really what the, the, the economics of the healthcare system has been in the past, right? It's been sick care. Is, everything is modeled around sick events or, or uh, as opposed to keeping people healthy. And if a, a physician by themselves may not be able to keep people healthy, but the combination of maybe some non-physician uh, providers as well as some future technology types of things can can hopefully help do that. And then to your point of, of being in the right niche, because the patient has to be willing participant in the healthcare team in order for for that value to work and, and to be to stay healthy uh, instead of uh, requiring quote-unquote sick care. Yeah, I think you, you mentioned a couple of, of terms I think are extremely important. One is the aspect of team-based care, and the other is integrating care across specialties and across providers. Right. And again, larger health systems uh, have that opportunity because they have a common medical record and they are, they're within the same system, even though they may have different specialties. Yeah, that's correct. So, well, let's uh, look about, you know, what other things do you see in the future for healthcare? As far as we, we see changes in payment, we see evidence of consolidation of services. You know, what, what else can organizations be doing about looking towards the future? Well, I think we're just starting to really begin to tap things such as virtual visits and patient monitoring types of activities uh, that are health related. There's probably opportunities for more of that type of stuff uh, to, to go on. You know, you have people that struggle with with hypertension, you know, to, to wear uh, monitors and things and, and, you know, somebody, whether it's AI or, or physician practices saying, have you taken, you know, have you taken your medicine today? Yes. Uh, that, the, those but, kinds of things. Let's get down to basics. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. If, you know, did, you know, did you fill your script? Right. If you filled the script, did you take the script, the exactly. prescription like you should? Yeah. <laughs> and, and, and managing behaviors and actions of the patients, again, to my point earlier of making them a participant in the healthcare team and engaged in their health. You know, uh, it's it's amazing. Like 
when you think of things of like readmission rates to hospitals, uh, and, and I've heard of various hospitals saying things like, our most engaged patients have an extremely low readmission rate. Well, well, no kidding, because they're engaged and they're taking, they're doing what they're supposed to be doing and they're interacting with the, the healthcare providers after they're, they're, uh, they're discharged to make sure that they don't go back. It's a lot of the times it's the, the patients that aren't doing what they're supposed to be doing after discharge or aren't following up with their primary care provider or, or things like that, which is one of the reasons that you've seen some health systems engage in like a, a, a mobile health type program, and we, we started this at Baylor Scott & White, where we would have in-home visits of either physicians or nurse practitioners or even emergency uh, EMTs partnerships to go and, and sort of check on patients a couple of days post-discharge to make sure they're doing those things. Did, did you fill your prescription and, and take a blood pressure reading, that kind of stuff, and, and see how they're doing. Uh, you know, I had, the opp- I had the opportunity to have interviewed Tim Cohen, Chief Executive Officer of ALN, about independent physician practice and his view that there is a viable and positive future for independent practices. But based on that interview and what we've been talking about today, you know, we're looking at this, sometimes it's not necessarily the setting, but it's the leader. It's the individual executive who manages that organization. So as we move towards the end of our discussion, I'd like to shift a little bit to the personal characteristics you see in leaders who are successful. What are your ideas for what is required for a healthcare executive to succeed, whether they're part of a health system or they're part of a large independent practice or a small independent practice? You know, what, are the, what do you think? <laughs> well, uh, you obviously have to understand your business. You have to, to, uh, to, to know the economics um, of, of your specialty or specialties. Even as important or potentially more important than that are things such as culture building, respect, making sure the members of your team are aligned with regards to where the organization wants to go. And in order for that to happen, the organization has to have a clear strategy. Uh, you know, you have to make sure that you know, your, your physicians, your, 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 your nurses, your, sta- your support staff, people in the building office, the administrative person, everyone you, you want to have bought into the culture. And some very important culture elements are things such as like continuous improvement of getting better every day of, of you know, the, what is sometimes referred to as everyone wearing two hats when they have their job. Or as the, your job is to do your job, but also make your job better. I've been extremely lucky to work in some in dyad relationships uh, for the majority of my career uh, where, you know, on paper, maybe I'm working for, for the physician leader or whatever, but the majority of the ones I've worked with really saw it as a partnership. Uh, and there have been ones where it has been a true partnership with regards to being peers with the physician leader of the group. But, uh, and in those, in those relationships, you have to have a, uh, as in any team, a, a clear understanding and appreciation by members of the team of this is the stuff that, you know, like I, I have chief responsibility for and, and we agree that you're going to support me in these decisions and these are the things that, that you have uh, responsibility for and I'm going to support you on those and then there's an agreement over this you know if, if those two things are a two circle Venn diagram there's this section in the middle that we agree we're not going to make any decisions until we talk to each other about that uh, in order to make sure that we're doing the right things uh, the reason you can you know 
get into spirited debate behind closed doors, <laughs> but once you walk out and you're with your, the rest of your organization, you're unified so that there isn't those indications where if mom says no, you go ask dad or vice versa. Because uh, yeah. th- those kind of cultures yeah. can be destructive and they happen all the time. Yeah, that's true. Well, in fact, let's transition a little from your experience working in at Baylor, Scott & White in that large health system to your new job at as MGMA's chief operating officer, where I think you have the opportunity to help MGMA as an association to bring these same skills to our members. Do you want to give some, some, what are your insights and your thoughts about where you are today and where do you think we can take MGMA to help benefit our members? So I'll back up a little bit from what your question is uh, to, because uh, I want to go back to why I decided to come here uh, a little bit. And, and that is that uh, I love this organization. It's been a very important part of, of who I am in my career journey. Uh, I was on the board. And I think MGMA is in a position right now of alignment with where people want to see healthcare go. Uh, you know, when you when you think about it, as physician practices, legislators, insurance companies, patients themselves, is if care can be provided easier, faster, cheaper, with, with similar outcomes in an ambulatory setting instead of having to be in a hospital for it, that's what a lot of the consumers or customers, and I'm, I'm speaking of internal customers too, like I said with physicians, would prefer to see it happen. And so when you think about organizations in the United States, MGMA is the organization for for group practice for, uh, and I would say arguably ambulatory care administration. And so it's a great time to, to join MGMA because I think that we can be a partner and we can help see that grow and, and change as healthcare is changing. Now, with regards to sort of your question around what I hope to bring to those things, I'm hoping to bring a lot of the things that I discussed earlier to them is build a positive culture, one of service, uh, one of uh, building team members who, who are aligned with regards to what we're trying to accomplish as an organization, uh, respect for each other, uh, service to, to other members within the organization, to have your basic responsibilities of what your job is, but also to make it better for every day. You know, the, the, what we have to have at MGMA is similar when you think about the relationship between, in a, in a medical practice, between employee engagement and or satisfaction scores and physician, uh, uh, you know, patient satisfaction scores is there's been a lot of literature that suggests, you know, if your employees are not engaged, if you do not have a, a good culture, you're not going to get to, to patient satisfaction. Well, we have to make sure at MGMA, uh, and we've got a great group here, uh, that we can continue to grow and increase our engagement and make sure that we have a a preferred preferred place to work so that it translates to better experiences for our members, better experiences uh, for our partners, better experiences for uh, anybody that's involved with the, the, the healthcare journey and ultimately making better care for the patients because, you know, we recognize that among the most developed countries in the world, we don't really have the best outcomes. Uh, so we, we've got great opportunity to improve healthcare delivery. And, and that is something that can make you feel good at the end of the day, that you know that you're uh, helping to impact and improve healthcare delivery uh, for the lives of patients. And yeah. I, I say, and really have kind of misspoke and said in the United States because we just <laughs> sold a membership to uh, in, in Dubai, uh, uh, which is our first one in this last month, which is super exciting. I think we've got a second one in the works there. So uh, that that's super exciting that we're, we're continuing to grow in that regard too. So 
because the, there's tremendous opportunity for us to help practices, both in individual practices, private practices, group practices to be successful, but also at, at organizations because the successful integrated delivery systems or or uh, hospitals that employ physicians, whatever, however you want to call it, the ones that are the most successful recognize that even though we're part of one system, there are elements to physician practice that is different, and we have to have experts and, and knowledgeable people managing those practices as well as resources to do so. Yeah, I, excellent I, excellent discussion, because I think what you've brought out is that MGMA has the opportunity to effect improvement at the organization level as well as help the, help the executives, those managers, to th- grow in their own jobs, right. and, we, and we can do both. I've always said that it's, it's kind of a, a little bit of a cycle that, you know, can reinforce itself is if we're successful at MGMA, we're helping individual practice leaders provide better care, provide better delivery of care, and if we're successful with regards to our influence and our advocacy efforts, we're improving health care delivery administrative burdens, we're, you know, reducing those, uh, simplification of things. We're improving things that then can help those same leaders be successful. So it, it should be a, a like a flywheel that uh, reinforces itself if we're mm-hmm. successful at what we need to do. Excellent. Healthcare is changing. It's changing all the time. And the people that are going to be successful are not the ones that have figured out how to provide health care five years ago. The ones that are going to be successful are the ones that are going to be able to figure out how to thrive in the health care that's provided next year. Yeah, I think excellent commentary, and I think an excellent way to conclude our discussion. Thank you so much. I know our listeners will find our discussion most interesting. Yeah, thank you, David. Glad to do it. (laughs) 